0: Thank you very much for coming. Um, We know that this is a a very topical topic today. Uh, As we speak, probably the Commission is finally going to reveal its hand on the withdrawal agreement. So Brexit is on many people's mind. Um, I'm very happy to have Benjamin Martel here with me to present the book Brexit and Beyond by UCL Press. Um, The book, as you can see here, has the subtitle, Rethinking the Futures, in plural, of Europe, and to which we added here with the colleagues from the Documentation Center uh, the question, what futures for European citizens? Uh, When I discussed this issue with Ben, he asked me to make a little disclaimer. It doesn't mean we can provide a legal counselling session on individual citizens' problems or situations here. It's more on the broader perspective of Brexit and beyond. Um, One key point that I would like to make at the very beginning is that this book is very accessible in every sense in uh, the sense that the idea was to provide shorter academic contributions than normal in an edited volume but also that it is freely downloadable, you have the the flyer on your chairs um, and even the hard copy I understand is relatively cheap to buy if you want to own a hard copy. Uh, All of these are criteria which are important to broaden the debate, and I think that was the purpose of the book as well, or is the purpose of the book. Um, The concept is to make sure that Brexit is not only discussed from one side or the other side, but with both perspectives or both sides of the argument in mind. Um, The idea that Brexit will affect the European Union in many ways is quite commonplace, I think, in Brussels, but may not be so in the UK. Vice versa, the fact that Brexit has many implications for the United Kingdom, which go beyond the pure membership in the European Union, there are interesting chapters on the constitutional implications of the UK. We in the COR have, of course, discussed or are discussing the question of what it means for devolution and uh, the unity of the United Kingdom. But also, the idea that uh, Brexit is not just due to some British idiosyncrasies or the perennial British awkwardness in the EU, uh, but that it actually is symptomatic of many broader trends which are visible in other countries, and dare I say, not just in Europe, but the world over in liberal democracies, uh, is also very important and a very important element of the book. Uh, As I said, the book contains. Um, and I find that very nice, 27 uh, individual chapters plus a unifying 28th chapter of conclusions um, and uh, brings uh, together a whole list of very prominent scholars on on European uh, integration and EU-UK relations, many of whom are... UK citizens, if I understand correctly. I don't know how many of them could vote in the referendum and how many didn't. I think I counted 18 sort of English-sounding names, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they all could vote or the others couldn't. Um, What I wanted to uh, say before giving to uh, Benjamin the the opportunity to briefly present the book is that, of course, Brexit uh, will be going on as we speak, not just today but in the next couple of months, and of course it's, um, well, the the, the flip side of topicality is that a moving target, and so of course the book, which was, I understood, begotten in a quite quick fashion by academic standards because you started in late 2016 and it was published in early 2018, so just over a year is incredibly quick for an edited uh, volume. But, of course, uh, many things have happened in, in the meantime and are happening as we speak. So I'm very much looking forward to your uh, presentation. The housekeeping would say uh, about 10, 12 minutes. Um, and then I will try to tease out some more aspects from uh, what we've heard. And then the floor is yours for discussion and debate. And now I hand over to Ben.
1: Wonderful. Thank you very much, Jesus. Um Good afternoon, everyone. I'm really pleased to have been invited here to speak at the committee. Um, it's obviously quite a daunting task to think of a way to summarise the contributions of our 28 excellent scholars, um, many of whom had personal disagreements over what Brexit was, uh, what the EU represents, and um, its sort of direction of future travel. Fortunately, I only have to convince you to click on the download link not to buy a copy of the book, so hopefully um, that's a good way of proceeding. Um, what I'm going to do is just briefly say a little bit of background about what motivated us to um, compile this volume, Uh, then say a little bit about the European contributors to the Brexit vote, and looking the other way, something about the potential implications for Europe of Brexit, and then I think we'll get on to discussion, which is what I'm really interested in. Um, So to begin with, uh, we wanted to create this volume to overcome three um, sort of gaps as we saw them in the Brexit debate in the UK. Um, And as Eustace has already said, this is potentially not so relevant over here, but certainly there were three problems in a way that we thought Brexit was being discussed in Britain. Um, The first of those, of course, is it was, in typical British fashion, quite insular. It was focusing on uh, what what had gone wrong in the country to cause Brexit, um, what the British problem with Europe was, and also what the future for the UK was going to be. Um, And we felt that... um, that that wasn't really um, a particularly sort of holistic way of understanding Brexit, and so to overcome this, we asked our authors to uh, try to contextualise Brexit, to try to put Brexit in the context of broader debates, issues, and problems within European politics. Um, the second problem, perhaps a perennial one, is the problem of the ivory tower. Uh, debates about the future of Europe are taking place in the UK. Um, many of them within the um, European Studies community. Um, and there was the issue that the, this community didn't, we feel, have access to either channels of political power that, you know, Conservative Party politicians were not willing to listen to the comments of European Studies scholars, um, but also to the country as a whole. You know, there was a, there's, a real, there's a real kind of divides within the UK that have prevented academics from coming out and reaching a wider audience. And so that was the reason we went for um, accessible chapters um, without much uh, theoretical um, jargon um, and also went for an open-access publisher and tried to do what very few other books have done and actually promote the volume through the tabloid press. We sent the press release to the Daily Mail and the Sun and said, engage with these arguments. They didn't, but that's on them. Um, The third problem we noticed was that, of course, the debate is heavily politicised. If you go to the Waterstones website or or a bookshop website and type in Brexit, more than half of the books are by those with a vested interest. They're partisan books, you know, should we Brexit, should we not Brexit, what does this mean? Um, And we wanted our volume to be uh, critical and academic, but also non-partisan. So we made a big effort to find those, um, including John Gillingham and Chris Bickerton, who are actually very critical of the EU. Um, and who have um, a very different perspective, perhaps, from the academic mainstream. So the idea is to make it as representative as possible while still being critical. Okay, so the two main main contributions of the book, I think. The first is the idea that um, many of the broader problems we see in EU politics and across Europe, and perhaps even the West as a whole, um, are implicated in the Brexit vote. Um, Now, I think it's important to state from the beginning what this means. Um, To say that some of the causes of Brexit need to be located in the European context is not to say that Brexit is necessarily a good thing. It's not to say that Europe is to blame for Brexit. Um, And it's certainly not to take a side in this partisan debate. What it is to say is that we need to think analytically about some of the similarities of what we observed in the contributing factors to Brexit in the UK and some of the broader problems we see in Europe. Um, Now, as academics, we like to think in terms of two distinctions. Um, The first is uh, between necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, And I think here the real point would be, yes, the claim is not that any of the sort of broader problems in in Europe, you know, the Euro crisis, refugee crisis, are sufficient condition for Brexit. Far from it. But that they're probably best understood as necessary conditions, especially given the small margin by which the UK voted to leave. So to put it simply, if you didn't have um, some of the problems in Europe, you you possibly would have seen a different outcome. And to that end, it's worth investigating all of the different contributors. The second analytical distinction that we often make um, is between proximate causes and background causes. And again, here, you can see where the bias to sort of domestic British causes comes in, right? Because the proximate causes all go back to, you know, David Cameron's uh, decision to hold the referendum, um, to the split within the Tory party. But I think when you you draw a kind of, take a more holistic, a long-term approach, you start to see that, well, this could have happened at any time. So why did it happen now? And that directs attention to some of the background facilitating conditions that that created, in a way, this shift from a British public and, of course, a tabloid press that were willing to, whilst not fall in love with the union, were perfectly um, supportive of British membership. This, this kind of, you know, this um, permissive consensus, in a way, in the UK towards a situation in which they weren't, and I think that's what we're interested in um, talking about here. So, to put a little bit of um, flesh on the bones, excuse me, Um, the question would be what do I have in mind when I'm talking about the European causes of Brexit? Now, I'm not going to identify um, any one specific factor, but I will try to Highlight some of the the three recurring themes that come up in a number of chapters in the book um the first of those is that the eu is in many senses in crisis once you when you take away the notion of the brexit crisis itself um you have the euro crisis of course which um it's it's very difficult even though Obviously, the UK is not a member of the euro. It's very um, easy to trace how the euro crisis undermined the credibility of the EU um, and came to, um, to paint it in a very negative light on the other side of the channel. And, of course, it's very easy to see how the euro crisis is currently undermining um, solidarity between uh, the north and the southern member states in the EU and creating various other problems. Add to this the other crises often talked about, The refugee crisis, of course, um, and one may talk about perhaps a crisis of foreign affairs insofar as um, the EU has thus far not been uh, particularly successful um, alongside others in the international community in dealing with um, instability in the Middle East and Northern Africa and in dealing with the resurgent Putin's Russia. Now, the point about all of these crises, in in a way, they go back to... um, the failures of the 1990s and of policies conceived at Maastricht, and whether you take that to whether you find the problem is that those were poor policies or that they were simply incomplete, and this is a partisan debate. Um, in every respect, um, it's quite clear that the uh, the, the policies conceived in the, at Maastricht, the common foreign security policy, the eurozone, and common efforts at common migration policy, have not been as successful as hoped. So that's the one, this this idea of Europe in crisis. Uh, the second is a sort of continuing problems with legitimacy. Um, and I think there's been insufficient attention to the ways in which support for the EU um, is falling in many regions, is falling in regions where you would expect it to be far stronger, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and I think there's... a there's a growing sort of um, concern that the EU is becoming less popular, um, but also is perceived not to be delivering for its citizens, um, and that in those pockets of core support for the EU can be traced back to um, very particular countries and kind of particular moments. But when you look around at the the you know the Euroscepticism on the continent, right, from the populist movements in Central and Eastern Europe to half the French population. Um, sizeable portions of East Germany and, of course, the ever-skeptical Scandinavian countries, you're not looking at just a problem of legitimacy in the UK. You're looking at a broader problem of legitimacy across the Union. And then the third point, which is related, of course, to these, is uh, the changing political landscape across Europe. And here what I want to do is simply say what we're seeing is a wholesale uh, move away from the liberal political centre In many cases, you've seen the support for mainstream centre-right parties erode, but also this has been particularly damaging for uh, centre-left parties, which are in decline pretty much across the continent, and it's not clear that they've really found a way to arrest this decline. Uh, In many cases, they're forced into, um, like in the German case, uh, unpopular um, coalition partners with their centre-right colleagues trying to cling to the left, um, and they seem to have failed to articulate... um, policies of, we, we might call it leftist internationalism or leftist globalism. You know, where is the centre-left's defence of the liberal system after the financial crisis would be one way of putting it. And of course this has led to a resurgence of populism on the left and the right pretty much across Europe. Um, so my point here would be simply to say that um, when we're looking at understanding Brexit and I think we need to acknowledge the extent to which these political changes and distrust in European institutions, but also mainstream politics, um, is is much more commonplace across the continent. Um, So I have two minutes left. Um, As always, I've waffled on for longer than I meant to. Um, So I'll just conclude with three um, brief comments on the future of Europe. Um, So looking forward, how do we see Brexit impacting on the future of Europe? And again, this is a debate that This is something that is probably much more relevant for the British audience that doesn't engage with these questions, but I think it's worth having that conversation nonetheless. So the first and sort of obvious way of looking at it is that um, Brexit will reduce the capabilities of the Union in whichever way those are conceived, Um, whether it's in terms of the EU's clout um, as a global actor, um, in terms of its global networks or its um, soft power, Um, certainly in terms of military power, with the UK being um, by far the biggest defence spender in possession of nuclear weapons and um, uh, one of the two EU members with a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, um, but also, obviously, in terms of economic law. I think this much we can all kind of agree on. Secondly, there are going to be changes to the balance of power. That's within institutions, as we see the effect of the withdrawal of a very particular member state, which has been... uh, pro-Atlanticist, previously pro-enlargement, um, neoliberal and intergovernmental. The way that this plays out in the institutions, I think, is going to be interesting and is, is something to watch, um, but also the balance of power between the member states, right? I mean, if you think now about the, the sort of the, the driving engine of um, European th- for the future of Europe in the next few years will be uh, Macron and Merkel. Right, it will be this this Franco-German diet. and so I think there's, it's interesting here to think about the ways in which the move from a tripartite to a sort of bi- um, a bilateral um, engine driving Europe is is going to have interesting political ramifications. And then finally, just to conclude, the there are the really intangible elements. Right, like what is the message of Brexit? Is it that uh, the EU is now an organisation you can withdraw from? Is it going to be? Um, the sort of thin end of the wedge with other countries demanding concessions, um, or is it going to be an unmitigated disaster for Britain, uh, which in, in doing so demonstrates the futility of withdrawing um, and at the same time reinforces European solidarity? And here I'd say this is one to watch because the jury is still out because it's very easy when you're dealing with the, the, the first smaller issues of withdrawal to show consensus between the member states it might not be so easy once we start to talk about future relations Um, and since much is going to depend on a future deal um, and whether or not a deal needs to be made against the backdrop of a British commitment to security and defence so there's a lot of issues at play here and I think the message for um, the message of Brexit is still not yet clear so thank you.
0: Uh, Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much (coughs) for really inspiring uh, questions raised by the book and by your presentation. And uh, there are many that I would like to follow up on, but I I try to restrain myself. Um, (coughs) I think uh, what struck me when I looked at the chapters of the book, and I have to admit that I haven't read all of them, but uh, uh, some of them, um, is also the point that you mentioned on the wider implications for democracy, both in the UK and in the Western world more generally. Um, and just as a gut feeling, uh, I, I'm still flabbergasted by the fact that the the question of a yes-no referendum based on a less than perfect campaign, as we know, with a relatively narrow uh, result can now be taken as the be-all and end-all of democratic decision making so I'm wondering whether, I mean I know that there are some contributions to the book which raise this very point and actually there's an interesting one by I think by Albert Wheel where he says that Probably to the great surprise of many who voted uh, to take back control, it will mean that they actually lose control because uh, it just empowers the government in hammering out the details of a very sort of very general uh, statement. But I just wanted to hear some further thoughts on the implications for democracy.
1: Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's a really good, um, really good point. I mean, it's it's definitely the case that um, this notion of take back control is. Um, sort of largely illusory one. And I think what's interesting here is it's illusory in two respects, right? So on the one hand, you've got Albert Wheel and others who are arguing that uh, you're actually seeing um, what was supposed to be taking back control for the British people is actually a power grab by the British executive, which with the Great Repeal Bill, now European Union Withdrawal Bill, will be... um, basically going through and picking apart pieces of legislation as it likes and it's going to ha- and it's not going to be able to or nor does it want to involve parliament in that process right so you you're actually seeing here a greater centralization of power in the british state the problem is also that you're not taking back control in terms of your ability to influence outcomes because the whole point of having transnational coordination in wi- whichever way you conceive of that, is that you tackle problems that can't be dealt with at the level of the nation state, right? I and mean it's a kind of regime theory, European integration 101. And so the problem is that by taking taking back control, you exchange, you, you receive nominal sovereignty um, simply for an inability to influence outcomes abroad. So, you know, how helpful is it really when Britain has its own, um, you know, it, it sim- simply has its own control over its own, I don't know, fisheries, or uh, you know, environment—it—it uh, it makes no sense. So that there's a loss of—I um, think there's a loss of control in in domestically and internationally. Um, but but the threat to British democracy really goes deeper. I mean, I, I'd encourage those of you who do down the book to um, to look at the, the chapters by um, so Albert Wheel and P. E. Coe, both of whom are at UCL actually. Um, I mean, so one of the points in Albert's chapter is that you're seeing this rise of um, kind of this mandate approach to democracy, which is exchanging um, constitutional structures and parliamentary oversight for this notion that the people have empowered the executive. And this is really damaging. And, you know, you saw, you saw what this can do in um, countries like Venezuela, right? This is this idea of delegative democracy. It's I can rule because I have a mandate from the people. I do not care what parliament says and I do not care what the judiciary says. So I think that's very dangerous, and you certainly see that in Britain when you see invocations of the people. You know, the people want. Well, who are these people? Fifty-two percent, but you know, not even right. Um, and the chapter by P. E. Coot is really interesting because he talks about the constitutional elements, and he says actually, Brexit exposes just how weak and uh, the British Constitution is because it doesn't have anything to say. It basically says, okay fine, Parliament will need to assent to Article 50, but beyond that you have no provisions, right? So it has no provisions for what happens when you have a ref- an advisory referendum. It doesn't tell you what to do. It doesn't. It isn't able to tell you how the regions should be involved. Um, and, and most damaging enough, it, it doesn't say anything about the rights of those EU citizens and of any citizens. Under, it simply says, okay, if Parliament agrees, then that's fine. And so... Pete chapter really points to this problem, with the kind of the British Constitution being sort of threadbare when it comes to rights protection. Sorry, that was a long and <laughs>
0: A- and that was an answer that focused on the impact of democracy in the UK, but we could have a, an, an, a similar discussion on the impact on democracy in other European countries, and actually you don't have to go as far as Venezuela to see examples of other countries in the EU currently, where uh, executive empowerment is everything but democratic. Um I would be very tempted to lead on to that question to one that I pre-warned you about, i.e. the impact of Brexit on the regions, but uh, because we are in the committee of the regions, I had to ask that question. But uh, rather than giving you straight back the microphone to uh, comment on that, I would actually encourage now people in the audience to uh, add questions to these, and then we make maybe two or three, we we collect two or three, and then you can have a response. The first gentleman in the back, do we have a microphone or you will just shout? <laughs> 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 uh, my name is Antolos Karlastis. Uh, uh,
2: I represent here the Ecoist Movement, the Pan-European and Mediterranean Movement, is based in direct democracy in science and ecology. And I've written two articles for, for Brexit. One last year, where mm-hmm. I, I wrote about the balance of the waves of Scotland and Northern Ireland, and how they could participate in the decision-making process for the Brexit, because Europe without the United Kingdom is not a, a when uh, the World War. Uh, the second article was not written before ten days around. It proposes uh, uh, the creation of the European uh, defense community. British, if they are going to leave or not, uh, we, we, we propose five years delay, according to the British, uh, so that the British can be better. And, but on the other uh, point, we need another. The citizens in Europe, they are not are not uh, very content um, according to my investigation ten years here with the Europe of the plan of Marshall with the Europe of the economic So uh, maybe if we build the Europe as it was uh, proposed by Minister in nineteen fifty two uh, the French Minister Pleven in nineteen fifty two when they made a treaty for the European uh, community maybe if the British together and with the Conseil de And with the Organization of Security in Vienna, they can create this community, which would be the same around as the European Economic Community. And we have two ports of Europe, so that the
3: citizens take a European total project and to understand better what the European, together with the United States, is the economical level.
0: Okay. Other questions?
3: comments. I work for um, the Commission of the Scottish and of um, well, First of all, thank you for the book. People who work on this on professional basis like to have as many sources as possible and, and the quality of the, 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 the scholars is very high, so the very reason, I think there is nothing our professional and certainly my own personal research on the matter. I, I just want to make a question on the issue of the causes of Brexit. One thing perhaps you have not elaborated. I believe, Enough is the issue of the of culture and understanding what the EU is about between the UK and the EU. I mean, one thing that, the only thing that Gifford and Theresa May were being on is that in a way was the union between UK and the rest of the EU was bound to fail because the EU, UK has always conceived international negotiations and international things as an intergovernmental transactional uh, thing, because that's the way the constitution of the UK is also built, whereas and Union, as almost all the other member states of the EU is very legalistic and formalized and has to be a hierarchy of things, and that's something the Brits, to this day, they haven't yet realized, so just to comment on that, granted it's not necessarily just the UK has this misperception, but definitely I it's something that's more prevalent in the UK. So okay, there's a
0: third question, and then we...
2: institutions but I think this is wrong this is my personal opinion not working in the name of the party or the people get it wrong but um, this is uh, also uh, revealed probably in the Catalan issue and in the future probably so can we correct something now in regards to this issue when discussing the EU is discussed in a country when so much are at stake okay
1: hand over to you <coughs> Okay, thanks for those questions, really helpful. Um, So I'll deal with them in reverse order. Um, The role of the EU in the campaign, yeah, you're right to say that um, the institutions were very careful and basically didn't say anything and were very reticent to come out. I think the problem with that is that they, they simply weren't empowered to by the way in which the debate was taking place in the UK. Um, I mean, the, the, and this maybe goes back to the second question, actually, about how deeply British citizens in the whole um, internalised the the notion of course, you know, the EU was was you know now part of the constitutional order and here to stay. Because in my mind, I mean, I was at Canterbury University at the time. We were campaigning very hard to stay um, in, and you would immediately find that as soon as you. Um, gave an argument for why Brexit shouldn't happen, uh, people would start pointing to where your money was coming from, saying, hang on, but don't you receive uh, money from the European Commission? I'm sure this is why you're saying that. And so, of course, that would have been exactly the response if, you know, the European Parliament delegation in London had come out and said, we don't want you to leave. They'd have said, oh, you know, this is blatant corruption diktat from Brussels that this is the kind of attitude that you were dealing with um and so it's very hard to see in that environment how it would have helped it, they were probably right it probably would have hindered and it's the same reason that big business didn't in the main come out and say uh, we don't want brexit to happen because they realized it would do more damage than good i think i think the real um, terrible problem is that we actually didn't the UK didn't allow um, EU citizens, of course, to vote in a referendum, which to me, just on a normative basis, the idea of having a state you know, those were really um, stakeholders in the process, right? It's like, if you're from Slovakia, living in London, you uh, it, it's going to affect you far more than anyone else, but of course, you were ba- basically disenfranchised. Um, so I think that was a real shame, but I can see why the institutions didn't come out and campaign more vociferously. As for what to do now, I think there's a broader question of firstly, sort of, how does Europe sell what it's doing? And I would say that the message needs to be much more in, down the line of social protection than economic freedom. You know, let's get rid of this idea that the EU represents globalisation, which is why a lot of people in the, in the UK voted to leave, right? Like, the EU represents neoliberal globalisation, which has cost them their jobs. Um, but, of course, you know, fight back, right? The narrative should be, no, actually, we're guaranteeing social protection across the continent. That should—that's the message I would go for. But um, so for Seraphin, thank you very much for your question. Um, yeah, so the the British causes of Brexit and differences in understanding—I think that's very true. I mean, I think if you go back to. Um, well, when the 60s, when Britain tried to join, and then the 70s, when it actually did, um, you see that a lot of these debates were very instrumental in nature. Right? It was about uh, joining the common market will be good for British business. We're being left behind economically. Uh, we will personally get more out than than what we put in. So it, it's a kind of cost-benefit analysis. Um, and the problem is that that's never really gone away. And so you had a situation where. The British people, okay, careful not to use that term, but constituencies in Britain were happy to support, happy to passively support integration insofar as they didn't lose from it. Right? And so, as soon as it seemed that that equation had turned around, as soon as after the financial crisis people were doing worse off, they they weren't. There wasn't any kind of vestigial residual identification with the EU. It was simply okay. Well, now the cost-benefit analysis has turned against us. Let's withdraw. I think that's a very crude way of putting it, but I think that's that's how um, I think that's what a lot of people were thinking, and I think problematically, that's how the referendum campaign was fought. I mean, looking at the leaflets, it's incredible now that nobody was saying that you know, Labour and Conservative pro um, anti Brexit campaigns were saying you will have more money if you stay in the EU. What a pointless, dull message for anyone, right? Not. Oh, you know, we are we are a part of Europe, and as part of this uh, common project, um, you know, we believe in staying in. And the problem is that that would have been a stronger message, right? That would have been a much powerful message. But I think they got that one wrong. Um, and as to the uh, first question, bring back the European Defence Community. Why not? Um, probably need it more than ever now. Um, I think I I wasn't quite clear what your question on that was but i i think i mean certainly there's a lot of discussion now about the idea that that you would need especially in kind of security and defense some kind of partnership um it, you'll at least need some kind of um some mechanism or some organization going forward to cover the gaps left by nato right both in terms of what nato doesn't do and hmm? Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, maybe we can have a talk afterwards about that. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Actually, uh, to just briefly follow up on on the question of Seraphine, um, uh, the funny thing was that when I looked through the book, and it's great to have it in a PDF, um, one thing that I was missing was A little bit on the history of the original idea of European unification and how that played in the debate and I ran a word search on Peace Project or Peace and actually it only comes up in the context of Northern Ireland not in terms of the original causes for integration which is somewhat symptomatic but there are interesting chapters in the book on the role of emotions and identity and the way that the identitarian shift in politics in general uh, has obviously played a crucial role in in the Brexit. Other questions please, yes, the lady over there.
2: Mm-hmm. <coughs> There's a lady in the back, yeah. You mentioned that uh, new citizens in the UK non-British citizens UK being disenfranchised. Is there any mention also of British citizens living outside the UK being
0: disenfranchised? No. Question here. Yeah, you you would.
4: Any at the uh, council on the other side? Um, I have the impression um, during a lot of discussions about Brexit that in the end it often comes down to the simple question: Is Britain Europe? Is Britain European? So it's so really a question of identity. Um, and I have the impression that also the debate was much, much more um, than in Eurosceptic debates on the continent about us versus them, us British versus them on the continent. Whereas on the continent, it's often more us white Christian whatever against bad immigrants. Um, so I, I, would, I would like to know more about that.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um, the problem with these questions is I don't think I really disagree with anyone, so I'm <laughs> not sure what the debate is going to look like. Um, so was it Catherine um, on Greece? Like how, how can you get the message across that um, the EU is in any way kind of social democratic guarantor of protection you know given the greek crisis i agree i think you can't and i think that's that's the fundamental problem and in fact if you in the conclusion of the board we we look at some of the ways in which you know we think europe um the, the eu can move forward um and so this is also uh, the topic of a briefing paper that's available online where we we think about some of the policy implications from this and you know the major one is just that, you know the the euro crisis has to be sorted out you you're going to have to have a franco German agreement on um, a euro budget on on actually fixing these problems um it, because it's you know it, it's it's creating rifts where they're just the European project was not designed to have these kind of rifts between nations right It was always going to be that ultimately consumers everywhere are going to be better off and then suddenly you have this previously technocratic organization um making very very political decisions made more often than not in Frankfurt, um, that are, you know, basically creating huge damage for um, for not just groups of individuals, but groups of individuals um, bounded by a nation state. That's always going to be a recipe for disaster. So I, clearly, I think my point about the message was simply where s- with such things as, you know, uh, worker protection, uh, work and time directive, um, you know, pregnant workers directive, those kind of things, I think it, it's there's a need to kind of uh, focus on the kind of narrative that europe does protect as well it 's not to say that europe is faultless um and it 's certainly not to say that um you know it dealt well with the greek crisis right so i, I think we i don 't think we'd probably disagree that much on that um then stephanie um British citizens outside the u k yeah of course um I think you know clearly it 's problematic that um that there were other other individuals who were disenfranchise I mean there's other groups as well you talk about uh, there's there was a lot of talk about maybe allowing 16 17 year olds to vote and of course they would have voted um, the they would have voted a majority to remain and of course you know it's their future that we're um, tearing up at the moment but there you go the word the word is different areas of disenfranchisement I think the biggest issue of course is actually the much broader problem of um, you know taking into account voices outside of England because Brexit really is an England problem, um, and you know, we, maybe that goes back to the comments that we would have had about the regions. I mean, it's Northern Ireland and Scotland both voted um, overwhelmingly to remain in the union. Wales didn't. Interestingly, a lot of a lot of academics suggest that's because Wales doesn't have its own newspaper industry. So, Wales, if you're a Welsh citizen, you'll end up reading The the Sun and The Daily Mail printed in London for the the sort of anti-European English audience, um, whereas, of course, Scotland and Northern Ireland have their own press. Um, But there's there's a much broader debate to be had there about the future of devolution, and it's not looking very good. Um, And David's question, um, sort of, is the discourse us versus them? Um, Yeah, I think, to a certain extent, but I, I think that goes a little bit too far in looking at how Europe was perceived. I think it was instrumental; it was transactional for many people. But I wouldn't say it was necessarily us and them, save for kind of you know consistent uh, Daily Mail readers and right-wing traditionalists who did regard the world still in this kind of nation-state framework. I think the problem is it's very much becoming more so now. I mean, if you look at the debate taking place in the UK especially as the negotiations proceeded there really was this mentality of like you know oh, Brussels is going to screw us again and I think the real problem there is that this is the explanation for why people haven't changed their minds right because you there was a lot of hope initially that you know people would change their minds if it was seen that Britain would get a bad deal um, and that's not going to happen all that's going to happen is that people that voted um, against Brexit are going to say well Of course, we deserved getting a bad deal, we shouldn't have done something so stupid. And people who voted for Brexit are going to say, well, we got a bad deal because Brussels is terrible um, and they don't care about us and we proved right all along. Um, And what to take from that, of course, is that these are very, very deep values about attachment and you you simply have a really divided population. 50% of Britain likes and benefits from supranational control and 50% doesn't and they vote that way. Well, that sounds like
0: a pretty resignative uh, uh, resume of of the debate. Uh, Can we have some questions to to steer Ben towards more hopeful uh, (laughs) considerations? Yes. Uh, Igor, I work here at the Middle of the Regions. It's not very hopeful, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's about, um, I don't know if the book has a chapter on it, but it's about research and development. So the UK is the center of uh, most research projects at the European scale. Uh, British universities are the main universities in terms of research, uh, challenged maybe only by some Dutch and maybe some German universities and Scandinavians. And um, so and British universities are full of uh, European, uh, European meaning continental European, researchers and students. So what is the the mood currently?
4: in
0: British universities and in the research uh, areas. Other questions?
4: There's one there. Um, Yeah, I might just, I suppose, look towards the uh, future direction of the union, and it kind of comes back a little bit to an earlier contribution, but the idea of more Europe or less Europe going forward. And my own inclination would be that when a lot of member states sign up and a lot of citizens um, in member states uh, go into the EU, and they become European citizens, they join um, something and then over time it, it changes into it something else that they're not prepared uh, to have accepted in the first place and then they realize that they're in this kind of machine that is has just uh, taken a new life of its own. So to give specific examples in terms of the Irish case with the uh, East referenda, and having to vote twice to pass a EU treaty and then a couple of years later having to vote twice to pass the, the european constitution repackage as the, <coughs> the lisbon treaty it's a little bit kind of being misled into something has then been told, that then being told you've gone the wrong way go again so similar concerns over the likes of further militarization uh, of anything resembling a type of uh, NATO structure for, for European member states is something that, that I would have difficulties with. I'd imagine a lot of people who would have similar kind of problems who are outside of the general uh, administrative bubble in, in, in Brussels as well.
0: And Now I can't resist the temptation of, of throwing in a question which is directly linked um, uh, because in the conclusions of uh, the the book you, you do point out these three areas and, and the, there I say, not very original argument, saying uh, several times in the book it said more Europe, j- answering the question or the crisis by just more Europe won't work. We need to concentrate more on the important things and we need to maybe do more on those and maybe a bit less on the others, which is exactly what Juncker has been saying all along. Uh, and now this question is then, okay, but do we agree on what are these areas in which we do want to do more? And... Reversely, do we know those areas where we think we could do less? Because uh, I guess it's not a secret to you that the C O R is very concerned with the fact that in the scenarios of Juncker, one of the areas where we could possibly do less is regional development policy, and we say, no, definitely not. That's exactly the wrong area to cut down on.
1: Okay, brilliant. Um, Thanks very much. So, um, first question to Igor. Um, Yeah. British universities are pretty spooked. Um, there's huge problems at the moment um, retaining uh, continental European researchers. And um, you know I go to a lot of Brexit parties at the moment because people are leaving and don't want to be there. The UK has obviously guaranteed um, research funding. And it's pretty likely, I think, that we'll end up paying in to the budget to access things like Horizon 2020. I mean, actually, that's one of the... I think it's it's often assumed that Theresa May's red line was no contributions to the EU budget. It's not. It's no significant contribution. So she's clearly going to push some kind of um, cherry-picking approach. But I, I think when it comes to um, simply access to European schemes like H2020 and Erasmus, that there's a pretty clear-cut case that both sides will agree. So I see that... Um, I, I, d- I don't see that being too much of a problem. I think... Um, i mean the real issue is is actually um it's a more kind of normative one it's like who wants to live and study and work and research in the uk when it's seen as being such an unfriendly place and i think that's why people are leaving you know uh, uh, for most most eu citizens in the uk i mean like look at the the kind of agreements that um that were tabled on both sides and 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 now sort of in in the what's going to come out in the withdrawal agreement, we, it's pretty comprehensive, right? Like if you're an EU citizen, you've been living in the UK for a while, I think it's pretty clear that you're not going to be deported, but just people don't want to live in an unfriendly country. That's why they're moving. Uh, it's not so much the uncertainty. Um, sorry, I didn't catch your name, Liam. Um, thank you. So, yeah, I think... So, I, I mean, just the qu- answers to both of you. Like, I, I don't think there is necessarily consensus on where you could possibly... I I, I think there's more agreement on areas where greater integration is needed just to solve specific problems. I think, you know, looking at the the euro crisis and the um, absence of a kind of workable common migration policy and Europe's current position in foreign affairs with an isolationist Trump, uh, British withdrawal and um, a resurgent Russia would suggest that foreign affairs, migration and you know, Eurozone are areas where you at least need to try and finish the job. As to sort of what could be the trade-off for that, I mean, there's a there's a good, um, a really good chapter in a book by Simon Hicks, who talks about decentralised federalism and suggests it's more of a trade-off. So it's not about more or less Europe, but it's about more Europe in some areas where it works and less Europe in others. And maybe one candidate for the less would be thinking more about this notion of democracy, right, which is in in quite a few of the chapters by Calypso Nicolaides and Richard Bellamy and saying that we need to get away from this idea that the ideal is to create, um, to replicate domestic democratic institutions on a supranational level. Actually, when you, when Europe works best, it's because it's allowing... Different communities to manage their externalities. So, and I don't know quite what that would look like. And I, uh, not to speak for them too much. I, I'm not sure they do either. But it's the the principle here would be actually maybe when we look at democracy and representation, we see areas where we could say, you know, maybe it's about finding a greater role for national parliaments. Um, so that would be my vague answer. <laughs> we have time for one or two more questions, if there are,
0: Klaus. there's one more question in the back there uh sorry <laughs> first there and then uh. Okay, and the last
2: question over there? the chapters the book
1: says that Brexit is excellent choice by Would be That's brilliant. Thanks for the questions. Um, so to mark, you know, Brexit is an opportunity. Actually, uh, read John Gillingham's chapter in the book, because he is pro-Brexit, um, and he thinks the EU is a doomed project, and the he's not sure which way Brexit will go, whether it will be good or bad, but he says it'll be one of the potential beneficial outcomes will be if it leads everyone to realise how the EU is a doomed project. So that's one example. Um, perhaps an extreme example. Most of the other authors don't agree with his stance, but there you go. So yes, we do have those that see Brexit as an opportunity. I mean, th- that word really annoys me. Actually, it's very kind of Orwellian. If you if you talk to anyone in the British government at the moment, um, they want you to focus on the opportunities from Brexit, right? Um, which of course is you know extremely uncritical in my mind, because actually I I, I kind of feel that academics in general are you know. Are are real sort of comparative advantages we can look at things neutral we d- we shouldn't be um, looking for uh, opportunities but that's the language that the british government is currently using um david yeah i i totally agree um there's a there's a pretty sort of simple domestic explanation which has to do with um the exposure of i mean so the areas most likely to vote leave were those that had had um, recent rises in migration and hadn't had um, increases in public service funding to match, right? And I, I think this is, in a sense, the crux of the problem, um, that you say you're living in Lincolnshire, you have recent, sort of post-2004, you have a lot of um, polls and East European workers moving in. The government doesn't really seem to believe in funding the healthcare to an adequate level anymore, so you draw a false parallel between um, individuals moving in and um, lack of hospital beds, missing the fact that you know the polls coming over pay their taxes, and that money just simply doesn't go back into public services. So yeah, th- there is the a. D- th- sorry. Well. Uh, of course, right? Uh, absolutely, but you know, but this is, you know, we're dealing with two realities, right? We're dealing with the underlying reality, and then we're dealing with the sort of. Um, the mind view, the world view, of the Brexiteers, and how they see things, and we have to actually engage with sort of the way that they look at the world because it's proving really efficacious, and they're in the driving seat now. Um, I, I think th- the point of our book is not to say that that's not true at all, um, nor nor also that it's not about um, the the way that Britain has historically viewed Europe as well, because I do think that's relevant. It's just to rebalance the debate. So, like I said, necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, so that that's just my kind of stock response there. Um, and was it Klaus? Um, so wh- why are Brits uh, more seemingly more afraid of Poles than Bangladeshis? Um, I, to be honest, I think this goes back to the way that a lot of individuals who supported Brexit, but clearly not all, um, saw the problem as being immigration and didn't differentiate between um, intra-EU migration and extra, sort of, you know, global migration. I think It's possibly not an overstatement to say that a lot of individuals felt that they would be sending the Bangladeshis home when they voted for Brexit, and I think that's why you had the vote. I I mean, but it's this. This is really complex, and it would it would do a great disservice to a lot of individuals who've come up with very. You know, it's it's very problematic to say that if you voted for Brexit, you're racist. It's simply not true. But some individuals wanted to reduce migration. I think conflated the two. Groups, as it were. So that would be my my best guess.
0: Well, I think that's all we have time for, unless there's a burning last question. You already had a chance, but second chance. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I th- it's, um, it's pretty difficult to be hopeful about the situation at the moment. I think if I wanted to find some hope in this is that it will provide something of a catalyst for necessary debates to take place within the EU. I think for Britain, um, I, I, I was previously quite hopeful that we might have some, something that um, could be sold as Brexit but wasn't quite Brexit. Um, it doesn't look like that's possible anymore. Even Theresa May's strategy, I think, at the moment is to is to try to get a slightly softer Brexit by comparing it, to, by saying that the only alternative is a cliff edge. But now that the Labour Party have come out against her strategy, it's quite likely that that could collapse in Parliament. I, so, I mean, who knows, right? But m- maybe the EU side can be slightly more hopeful. But in, it's, Britain's a pretty depressing country to be in at the moment. Well, on this uh,
0: joyful note, uh, I thank you all very much for being here and for uh, interesting questions and comments. I do thank Ben for his remarks and his introduction to the book and uh, sort of by extension I thank all the authors who contributed to the book and UCL Press. So thank you very much, have a good afternoon and see you soon.